Well, if you would take your copies of the scripture and turn in them to John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and we've come to this passage this morning. We're really picking up in the middle of a story. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, and he has been, he stood up in the temple and began teaching the people. And we pick up in verse 25 as we see how people were responding to what he said. John 7, verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Where does he... What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Amen. That's the reading of God's word. There are many general questions that the Bible answers. Is there a God? Where did the universe come from? Why are we here? What is the meaning of our life? Etc. It also answers some more specific questions, such as, where did the nation of Israel come from? How did Christianity come about? And who is Jesus? That last question, of course, who is Jesus, that's at the very heart of the whole Bible. It's the question that the Bible is most interested in answering From beginning to end, the Old Testament anticipates the arrival of Jesus and prepares you to understand it. The New Testament announces his arrival and explains what it means. And at the center of what the Bible says about Jesus is this. He is the Messiah. The word Messiah from the Hebrew or Christ from the Greek, literally means anointed one. But it came to refer to a particular person whose coming was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. He's a shadowy figure at first, but we learn more about him as the Old Testament unfolds more and more. We learn that he would be a man, a descendant of Adam and Eve. He would be particularly from the descendants of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. And he would be called Messiah, anointed one, because like his ancestor David, he would be the Lord's anointed king over his covenant people. And not just that, like prophets and priests were also anointed under the Old Testament, The Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, and a priest like Melchizedek, Psalm 110. In other words, he would uniquely hold all three anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. And in this way, he would be God's ultimate anointed one, Messiah, Christ. So he would be God's ultimate prophet, 
who would come and deliver God's full and final revelation. He would be, as David says in Psalm 110, a priest forever. Because he would, as Isaiah 53 says, make atonement for his people through the sacrifice of himself. And he would also be, as the prophets always said, God's king over not only his people, but over all the nations, over all the earth, and forever. Indeed, as the Old Covenant period is drawing to a close, the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures foretold that when the Messiah, God's ultimate anointed man, would arrive in the last days, he would bring about this climactic salvation, climactic redemption and rescue for a remnant of his old covenant people, Israel, along with a remnant of all the nations, as Abraham's promise had been. Through him all the nations will be blessed. And it would be this grand fulfillment of all of the ancient promises, first to Adam and then to Abraham and David, etc., This grand final salvation would involve a new people with new hearts joined to him in a new covenant, worshiping him in a new temple under a new Davidic king ruling from a new Jerusalem, ultimately on a new earth. So from all of that, you see that it is no small thing that the New Testament comes along to announce that Jesus of Nazareth was this long-awaited Messiah whose coming was foretold and described throughout the Old Testament. This gospel, that is, this message of good news, that the Messiah had come and he was Jesus, is the main point, really, of the whole Bible. And It's the foundation, the gospel, upon which the Christian church has been built for the last 2,000 years in every place on the earth. Now, of course, not everyone has believed the New Testament's claim, announcement of good news that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. And that's what we see in our text this morning. At the heart of our text, John 7, 25-36, is this question of whether Jesus is the Christ. And what we see is that the people who are described in our text uh, come to different conclusions. Some say yes, some say no, and others are uncertain. Of course, the purpose of our text, to bring us into these various responses from far away, is to confront us with that same question. Is Jesus the Christ? And to persuade us that the answer to that is yes. So that we too might say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Well, before we dive in and look at that more closely... Let's remember something of the context of this passage that we've come to. The last time that we were in John, Jesus had been to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, the Feast of Booths. Or sorry, uh, first of all, going back to chapter 5, he had gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate an unnamed feast, and he had had a major run-in with the Jewish leaders there. He had violated their Sabbath rules because he healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to get up and carry his mat on the Sabbath day. And that was a big no-no in the rabbinical traditions regarding the Sabbath. And then he proceeded to justify his actions by claiming that he was the divine son of God, who had the authority to do what God does. And so that last time that he was in Jerusalem, In chapter 5, the Jewish leaders had begun seeking to put him to death as a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. Now, in chapter 7, we'd seen that after avoiding Jerusalem for a period of time, Jesus now goes up to Jerusalem again for another feast, this time the Feast of Booths. 
But this time, knowing that the Jews are seeking to kill him, he entered the city in private, surreptitiously. He kept a low profile until the middle of the feast when he suddenly went to the temple, stood up, and began teaching the people. And John tells us that until then, the city had been abuzz with discussion about Jesus and people were divided in their opinions about him. Some thought he was a good man. Others agreed with the Jewish leaders that he was a false teacher as leading the people astray. But when Jesus stood up and began teaching the crowds in the temple in the middle of the feast, he was wowing them with his insight, his power. And he rebuked the Jews in the last text that we looked at for their sinful judgment of him because they misunderstood the Old Testament law. And now we're going to see in our text how various groups of the Jews who are in the crowds there listening responded to all of this. So this is verses 25 through 36. Now the first group and their response is described here in verses 25 through 27. And this group is described as, quote, if you look in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem. So, It's almost certainly not the larger crowd of pilgrims who had come from all over Israel to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem, nor was it that smaller group of religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, etc. Rather, this is a group of Jews who lived in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. They were there in the temple that day along with all the other pilgrims. When Jesus got up to teach, but because they were residents of Jerusalem, they seemed to be more in tune with the controversy between Jesus and their Jewish leaders there in the city than the larger crowd of pilgrims were. So the larger crowd is just, wow, he's an amazing teacher. These people of Jerusalem are in tune with the controversy surrounding who he is. So, for instance, they know that their leaders had been waiting to kill Jesus or to they were waiting for Jesus to enter the city, presumably so that they could seize him and put him to death. And this is why they're surprised that their leaders hadn't seized Jesus as soon as he appeared in the temple and began teaching them. Here was the man they were looking for. Not only that, but he's there teaching the people right in the temple and the Jewish leaders didn't do anything. How could they let a man they considered to be not only a Sabbath breaker, but a blasphemer and a false teacher stand there in the temple publicly propagating his false teaching to captivated throngs? As John records them saying in verse 25, you see it? Is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Now, these Jewish residents of Jerusalem were so baffled by this that they briefly entertained the notion that perhaps their leaders had come to conclude that maybe Jesus was the Christ after all. Perhaps they had discovered something about him that they as the people didn't know. And so you see there in verse 26, they say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But then they quickly decide against it. As one commentator put it, they raise the possibility only to dismiss it. So instead they reason from what they know about Jesus that he can't possibly be the Messiah. And you see their reasoning there in verse 27. They say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's a little bit of a confusing thing to say because obviously... um, You know, when the wise men went to the Jewish leaders, they say, where does the Messiah come from? What did they say? Well, they quoted from the Old Testament scriptures because the Old Testament did have some things to say about where the Messiah would come from. Micah chapter 5 predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 9 indicated that he would come forth from Galilee of the Gentiles. Rather, it seems that what they're likely talking about here is the fact that there were certain texts, one of them was Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which seemed to speak of the Messiah as 
arriving suddenly, arriving unexpectedly, he would suddenly come to his temple like a refining fire. Such that when he did arise, people wouldn't know where he had come from. But they knew Jesus. They were familiar with his origins. They were well known to everyone. People knew that he was the son of Mary and Joseph, who grew up in Nazareth with his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and a couple of sisters as well. Yes, his miracles, his teaching were unexpected, but his background was familiar. And so they concluded he can't possibly be the Messiah who would come suddenly and people wouldn't know where he came from. In verses 28 and 29, we're told that Jesus was aware of what these people of Jerusalem were saying about him. Now, whether he knew this supernaturally or because someone informed him what people were saying, we don't know. But John tells us that he responded to it in the middle of his teaching. He's standing there teaching the people in the temple and he knows what they're saying, these people of Jerusalem. And so he begins interacting with it. Verse 28 and 29, it says, So, because of what they were saying, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. It's interesting, that word translated proclaimed there. In the Greek, it's very strong. It, it, it means to cry out with a loud voice. In some contexts, it could even mean scream, but that's not what it means here, but it gives you that sense. He's raising his voice. He's getting people's attention. He wanted the people of Jerusalem who he knew what they were saying about him. He wanted to appeal to them that they would consider what he's saying and reconsider their false conclusions about him. And Perhaps it seems that because he did this, he was sensing in them a certain degree of uncertainty. After all, they had said, well, Do our authorities know that this is the Christ? No, he can't be the Christ. So he appeals to them. What Jesus told these Jews is that, essentially, they didn't know as much about him as they thought they did. Yes, they knew him. That is where he had come from in terms of his family and the place he grew up. But they didn't know where he had ultimately come from. They didn't know where he had come from before he was born into the world. What they were unaware of, what Jesus knew about himself, was that he had existed before he was born and had been sent by God into the world. So, speaking of his father, God the Father, Jesus said to them, But I have not come of my own accord, And again, I come from him and he sent me. I dare say your average person doesn't talk that way. If Scott Scarborough starts saying that God sent him into the world, I'm going to sit down with him for some counseling, right? But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus also made an extremely provocative statement about these Jews that he was speaking to. He said, They didn't know the one who sent him. As he put it, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. In other words, they didn't know God the Father, the one true God, Yahweh, who had sent Jesus into the world. The implication is that this is why they didn't recognize Jesus. If they had truly known God the Father they would have recognized that Jesus was his son. Now, of course, it's a provocative thing to tell devout Jews that they didn't really know God. But it had to be done, didn't it? Because it was the truth. And he wasn't going to leave them in a state of self-deception, thinking they knew God when they didn't, just to keep from disturbing or offending him. Now, there are many, of course, who are like these Jews in different ways. They're evaluating Jesus. They may even decide that they believe one thing about him, 
But then they think about it and they change their minds based upon different things that they hear or new thoughts that they have about it. Like these Jews, they perhaps haven't completely settled the matter in their minds. They, this may describe some of you here this morning. The good news for you is that what you see in this text is that Jesus was aware of such people in the crowds in chapter 7, and we're told in verse 28 that he engaged with them. He cried out to them. He urgently appealed to them in the midst of their doubts and uncertainty and called them to reconsider their false conclusions that they'd made about them. And there's no reason to believe that his heart toward any of you that might be in the state of uncertainty about Jesus, that his heart toward you isn't, is any different. He's, he will engage with you. He appeals to you urgently to reconsider your conclusions about him. But Jesus' message to the Jews in our text, who were deeply unsettled in their mind about him, is that they didn't know as much about them him as they thought they did. And indeed, he declared that while they did know some true things about him, there were other things about him that they were misinformed of. And I would suggest that the same is true of many such people today as well. Many are unsettled about what they think of Jesus because they're ignorant about certain things about him. They're misled about certain things about them. They may have heard things about him or held opinions about him that simply weren't true. So, just as Jesus informed these Jews about what was true about him, things they didn't know, so it would behoove you. Let me urge you, who perhaps might be uncertain about Jesus, to make sure that you understand what the Bible really says about him. Don't just watch YouTube videos and read books and blog posts about him without taking out your Bibles and examining the New Testament record of him for yourself. Yeah, when you read the New Testament, there are going to be difficult things for you to understand, but it is clear enough for people to understand its basic teaching. And I would suggest that doing that will probably reveal misunderstandings that may have led you to draw false conclusions about Jesus. What you learned about Jesus in the New Testament I don't want you to mistake, is astounding. For instance, in our text, he claimed to be sent into the world from God. But the claims about him in the New Testament are also very clear-eyed and credible. The New Testament is not just the stuff of myths and legends like people say. But the testimony of average people from various walks of life who saw him, who heard him, whose lives were transformed by what they heard and saw of Jesus for themselves. But it also must be pointed out how Jesus told these Jews that part of the reason they didn't recognize him is because they didn't know the one who sent him. They didn't know God, his father. In other words, if they'd truly known God, they would have recognized Jesus as having come from him. In fact, Jesus had made a similar point in this same chapter back in verse 16. If you look back there, you'll see he says this to the crowds. He says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, he's saying to the crowds, if they really wanted to do God's will, they would have believed Jesus' teaching because it was from God. And you see, the fundamental point he's making, both there in verse 16 and also in our text, is that it is a right disposition of heart, a heart which knows God, which believes God, which is obedient to God, that is necessary in order to believe the truth about Jesus and follow him. So if you are unsettled about Jesus, you're going back and forth in your mind, you have to recognize that your fundamental problem is not just ignorance. 
Like if you just got more information about him, then you'd be okay. The fundamental problem is sin, the sinful condition of your heart. Because you see, we are sinners by nature. That's what the prophet Jeremiah very frankly said. Our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. So when you have wicked hearts exposed to truth and righteousness in Jesus, the divine Son of God, it's uncomfortable, displeasing, even repulsive to our sinful nature. Jesus said this very thing back in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's him. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So, if you are here this morning and you are uncertain about Jesus, wavering between different opinions about him, I would just urge you, Humbly recognize that there's this distorted lens which your fallen human condition puts in front of your eyes when you evaluate Jesus and pray, God, take it away so that I can see the truth about him. It's perfectly appropriate for someone who wants to know the truth about Jesus but finds themselves struggling, struggling with resistance and skepticism to pray, God, If you are really there, reveal the truth about Jesus to me. If I'm blind to his true identity, open my eyes so I can see him for who he is. I find myself resistant to him, Lord. If he truly is your son, please take away my hardness of heart so that I can embrace him in faith. The scripture says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he will never deny. And believers, we who are ambassadors for Christ, we should have an eye for people in this condition of struggle and uncertainty about Jesus. And like Jesus himself, who cried out to them in a loud voice, we should be willing to do call them to do these things that I've just been talking about and work with them rather than simply just writing them off. In verse 30 it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Who are they that were seeking to arrest him? It is a little bit difficult to tell. The Jewish leaders were really the only ones with the authority to arrest Jesus. And verse 32, a little bit later, describes them as doing that. So likely John is just stepping back here and saying that he's referring to the Jewish leaders and how they wanted to arrest them. But perhaps he also has in mind that some of these skeptics, these people who are uncertain, these people of Jerusalem were helping them out. But interestingly... John tells us that even though Jesus was right there, standing in the temple, teaching the crowds, the Jews were unable to apprehend him. And it says, it was because his hour had not yet come. And you see the implication of that. The implication is that God didn't allow Jesus to be arrested at this point because the time for his arrest and trial and crucifixion hadn't come yet. He still had many things for Jesus to accomplish before that happened. Now, this affirms a truth that's really confirmed throughout the Bible that we need to think about here and take to heart, that God exercises complete sovereignty over his creation. And he is ordering everything that happens in his creation to work and accomplish his perfect plan. You think of Ephesians 1.11 where Paul says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that includes events that are large and events that are small. From the rise and fall of nations to the death of a single sparrow or the way the lot falls when it's cast into the lap. The scripture tells us that the Lord exercises a meticulous control over all of these things. Now, of course, John doesn't tell us how the Lord prevented the Jews from arresting us. 
You know, you picture maybe they tried to get in there, but the crowd jostled them away. And maybe they uh, were going to, the, the guards were going to come and then they got called to a different task or whatever it is. It doesn't seem as if it was a sort of direct intervention where God just put his hand down and says, no, you will come no further. But rather that it was through some ordinary sequence of events that God prevented them from being able to arrest him. Perhaps somewhat like the book of Esther and how the Lord prevented Haman from succeeding in his plot to kill the Jews and ended up that he was hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Something probably similar was happening here. And either way, it's a reminder to us that God, the God whom we call Father, thank goodness, is on the throne of the universe. And he is ordering all the events of human history to accomplish his good purposes. And Paul tells us in Romans 8.28 that he's causing them all to work together for our good who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't need to be afraid. That things are going to happen in the world or to us, whether good or evil, that are somehow out of his control. Hopes I lost track of that one. And therefore have no good purpose. As with Jesus in verse 30, so also with us, nothing is going to happen to us apart from the permission and ordination of our wise and good Father for his loving purposes however mysterious those purposes might be to us in the moment. Well, in verse 31, we learn that there were people in the crowd who didn't have the same skeptical response about Jesus that the people of Jerusalem had. So there it says in verse 31, if you look again, it says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, some in the crowd, We're listening to Jesus' teaching, and they had been aware of his miracles. Perhaps many of them had personally seen him perform miracles or had at least heard about them. And they saw those miracles, those signs, as clear evidence confirming that he was indeed the Messiah. And in reality, it didn't take a rocket science to figure that out, did it? This was actually the logical conclusion that a person would have drawn from Jesus' miracles. Because, for instance, John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, had claimed that he was the Messiah. And Jesus himself had not denied it. In fact, he'd even confirmed it in various ways, on various occasions. You think of him speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll make these things clear. And he says, he who is speaking to you, I am he. And you might think that if Jesus was just another messianic pretender, because there have been many of those in these days, then he wouldn't have been able to perform many undeniable miracles. I mean, these weren't minor tricks. This wasn't like the Egyptian magicians. You know, things that might be fake. These were spectacular acts of undeniable divine power. You know, he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. He multiplies five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men and their families. He walks on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm and he gets into the boat and the storm calms. And these weren't things done in private, you know, to just a few people so that, you know, only a few people saw it and you could never really confirm what happened. No, Jesus did these miracles in public. Thousands of people could testify that they had seen these things with their own eyes, including his enemies, by the way. Indeed, it is noteworthy that when you read the New Testament, you don't find anyone really denying that Jesus performed Jesus, get around the implication of his miracles? Well, they attributed them to the power of Satan. They say he must cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. But as Jesus pointed out, that's just absurd. It was obvious that Jesus' miracles were done by the power of God, which meant that 
he had God's seal of approval. Remember the Pharisee Nicodemus who had acknowledged back in chapter 3 verse 2? Quote, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And his miracles confirmed his claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. Because it's inconceivable, right, that God would empower him to do such great and undeniable signs if he was going around lying that he was the Messiah. It was this quite sensible line of reasoning that led some in the crowds to confess that they believed in him. They'd seen the miraculous signs, or at least heard about them, and they concluded he must be the Christ. By the way, I would argue that this line of reasoning is still just as sensible. Now, of course, Jesus is no longer alive in the body on the earth. No one today has seen Jesus in his bodily life on earth performing miracles like the Jews had done in his day. But those who did see those miracles have told us about them, have borne witness about them, In the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament is a collection of documents from the ancient world written by people who lived in the first century, in the days of Jesus, who wrote about Jesus based upon the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Luke, for instance, he opens his account of the gospel by saying this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And by the way, We have multiple other independent documents in the New Testament written by other people, first and foremost the other three Gospels, that each together corroborate the facts about Jesus' words and works, including that he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, and that he performed many miracles to confirm it. The greatest miracle of all, of course, being the fact that he rose from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion. Now, if these things really happened, we can't reasonably expect better evidence that they happened from the ancient world, can we? There's no cameras, no videotape. Indeed, the events of Jesus' life, including his miracles, are some of the most well-attested events that we have from history. But if what the New Testament says is true about him, then it is reasonable for us to conclude, like the people mentioned in verse 31, that Jesus really was the Christ as he claimed to be. If you haven't considered that already, I urge you, start considering it this morning. As they put it, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And if he is the Christ, well, then you should believe in him as they did. And for us Christians who believe, it's important for us to understand that our faith in Jesus is reasonable. It's not some kind of irrational leap that we make apart from or contrary to evidence. Rather, it is actually based upon the best possible evidence we could expect from the ancient world. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because he claimed to be so and then confirmed it by performing many great and undeniable miracles, including rising from the dead on the third day after his death in the presence of many eyewitnesses, some of whose testimony has been preserved for us intact in the New Testament documents. So when people ask us, you know, why do we believe in Jesus? We shouldn't solely or even primarily say, well, let me tell you about my experience of his work in my life. That's something legitimate, but that's not the first line of evidence. Nor do we say, well, 
I don't know. I just take it on faith. As if we have no good reason to believe. As if there were no better evidence, no rational basis for our beliefs. That isn't true. And it ends up actually just undermining the credibility of the Gospels in the minds of those we're speaking to. Now, that's not to say that faith in Jesus Christ is merely a matter of reason. That it doesn't require the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It does. It's simply to say that, look, the miraculous signs which Jesus performed give us a good reason to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what our text is saying. In fact, the Apostle John will actually establish this later on in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. He says, reflecting on all that he had said in the book, he says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, unbeliever, Jesus is the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. He is God the Son, sent into the world as a man by God the Father to save guilty sinners like you and me. Anyone who will believe in him. He lived a perfect human life on behalf of his people. He died a sinner's death in their place upon the cross, taking the penalty for them. He rose again in a glorified body to give them resurrection life. He's the only hope of fallen humanity. Whoever believes in him, John 3.16, will not perish but have eternal life. So my message to you is, Come to Jesus in faith this morning, repenting of your sins, if you haven't already. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life as a gift. And then you need to be baptized in his name. Join a local church where you can begin learning how to follow him as Lord for the rest of your life. Finally, in verses 32 through 36, we're told how one more group the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus and how he handled it. Verse 32, it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So here we see in the Pharisees a hardened rejection and opposition to Jesus. They're convinced he is a dangerous man who deserved to be put to death. Not only because he's breaking the Sabbath and blaspheming, but also because he's leading people astray. So they conspired with the chief priests, Sadducees, who were the chief priests, his family, and the Levites who operated in the temple. They were really more of the politicians and power brokers, the the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. But the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, And the scribes conspire with the chief priests to get the chief priests to send officers, that is, temple guards, to arrest Jesus because he's right there teaching in the temple. Now, Jesus, again, he's aware of this. We're not told how. Maybe supernaturally, maybe someone warned him. And he addressed the Jewish leaders there in verses 33 and 34. Look what he says. I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, obviously, in the face of the hostility of the Jewish leaders, Jesus spoke there of his impending death. It wouldn't happen right away, as we shall see. They're not going to be successful in arresting him at this point. In fact, that's what he says. I will be with you a little longer. But eventually... The appointed time would come for him to give himself over into their hands to be crucified. And afterwards, he would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. As he put it, then I am going to him who sent me. After this, Jesus seems to utter what I take to be a very ominous warning. That once he did return to heaven, his enemies, these Jewish leaders, would seek him but be unable to find him. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. It's a little cryptic, isn't it? What does he mean by that? It's tempting to think that he's saying, na, 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 na. When I go to heaven, you can't get me. 
I don't think that's what he's saying. I mean, I, that really wouldn't make any sense. I mean, the Jewish leaders put him to death. They don't believe he rose from the dead. Why would they try to harm him after that? Rather, I think what Jesus was saying to these Jewish leaders is that they were in the process of rejecting the Messiah that God had sent into the world, had sent them. And after he ascended into heaven, they would have no more access to him. They would go on looking for the Messiah. They would seek him, the Messiah, but they would never find him because he'd already come and they'd rejected and killed him. All that would be left for them at that point, as the author of Hebrews put it in 1027, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But you see that the warning fell on deaf ears Verses 35 through 36, we see they didn't understand what he's saying. It's another one of these times when they sort of take him too literally and they don't understand what he's saying. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion? That's just a word that meant the scattering. The Jews that were still out among the nations hadn't come back out of exile. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? It's really a pathetic picture, isn't it? It's a picture of these people whose hearts were hard and it left them blind and deaf to the truth that was right in front of them. The eternal divine son of God had entered into the world as a man. He was the Christ they were waiting for. But they couldn't see it. Indeed, they would not see it. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. Their future judgment would be just. Now this warning is not just for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in that day. But it's recorded because it's intended to extend through the pages of this book to every reader. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Whoever believes in him will be saved from the punishment they deserve for their sins. But if you reject him, refusing to believe that he is the Christ, at some point it will be too late. The author of Hebrews put it this way. He said, is it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment? And that judgment will be a day, as Jesus so often said, of weeping and gnashing of teeth especially for those who heard of Jesus but refused to believe in him because they will know that they had the opportunity to believe in him during their life and they threw it away to their own destruction. So having rejected his mercy, they will experience his justice. So I would urge you, unbeliever, turn. Turn, as God said through Ezekiel, why would you die? Repent, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins before it's too late. Hebrews 10.31 warns, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And believer, let's remember this as we think of unbelievers around us. Perhaps some of you, this is cutting to your heart because you're thinking of friends and family and other loved ones. Let us remember this so that we might be moved with compassion toward them and proclaim the gospel of Christ to them and urge them to reconsider, to respond in repentance and faith, praying that God would change their hearts, warning them to flee the wrath to come. And on the flip side, we can look at this and what joy and gratitude we ought to feel in our heart toward God to think that he has enabled us to believe in Jesus by his grace. You know, I think of those words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 25 through 27. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. From that, we know 
that it was only because of God's gracious choice to reveal himself to us through Jesus Christ that we have believed where others have not. He's opened our blind eyes. He's opened our deaf ears. He's taken out our hearts of stone so that we have seen that Jesus is the Christ and believing have received life in his name. Praise him. Praise him. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory for our salvation and our reconciliation to him. This is why we love him, why we want to serve him with our lives. At the heart of this text is the question of whether Jesus is the Christ. And it's the purpose of this text to persuade us to believe that the answer is indeed yes. Because, indeed, this truth that Jesus is the Christ is at the heart of the whole Bible. It's the best news that guilty sinners could ever hear. And though many are undecided, some flat out refuse to do so, let us be those who choose to believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As the psalmist said, the entrance of your word brings light. The Father, we know that the sinful nature of man is blind and deaf. We thank you, though, that in your mercy you've condescended to us and by the power of your spirit you've healed our hearts, you've opened our eyes and our ears, given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You've melted down our hearts of stone and enabled us to see and believe that Jesus is the Christ. You've given us life through him, filled us with a love for him. Oh God, we grieve our sin still, our remaining corruption by which we dishonor our Lord. We thank you, though, that our sins are paid for in full and that you've put your spirit in us so that we might respond to his grace with love and obedience. We pray that we might abound in those things more and more. We pray for our lost, the lost in this room, the lost in our families, our neighbors, our friends, that you would cause the gospel to go forth in power, that you'd open their blind eyes and do the same for them as you have done for us. And help us to be witnesses to them, boldly proclaiming to them the truth, the gospel message. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, for your glory and our good. Amen.